fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage, 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, the narrative. Most of you are very familiar with the, uh, the story itself. It's become kind of the universal proverb of the, the small underdog who conquers the uh, conquering the all-powerful giant. Actually, we have a lot of narratives like this in our culture. The, the, the current uh, hit uh, Star Wars is just really an intergalactic version of David and Goliath, right? Remember, you have the rebellion versus the evil empire. So cowboys and, uh, and uh, Indians, uh, the uh, lots and lots of narratives in the culture really portray the small, independent, um, uh, helpless uh, victim, if you will, who winds up conquering Goliath, whether it's a business culture or a, or a, or a society culture at large. Uh, really, the story of David and Goliath, though, is almost always mistold and misunderstood. It's almost always looked at from a man-centered point of view. Uh, with enough ingenuity and courage, even a small and weak can overcome a giant opponent. The real hero of the story, the real giant, uh, the central figure in the story is not Goliath. And it's not David either. It's God. It's God. God is the only real giant in this story. So the physical site, the physical setting, the geographical outline of this uh, narrative takes place in the Elah Valley. And for those of you that have been to Israel, you're gonna, you've been here before. Some of you, including me, actually have rocks from the, from the brook that uh, David was in. Joy. <coughs> Are you speaking? Yeah. <laughs> Joy has rocks? Boulders. Okay, let's take a look. Uh, let's, go to ver let's, let's read the setting, verses 1 through 5. The physical setting of this particular conflict. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko. Rob's got a number of maps he's going to put up on screen for you, which belonged to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah. And Ephesdamium, the, the word Ephesdamium, by the way, means boundary of blood. Boundary of blood. So this is a border area between Philistia and Israel. Border areas are usually bloody areas because border areas are where conflict takes place. So this is where the Philistines are set up. Azekah is to the west, Sokoa is to the east at that point in time. In between them, you see the um, geography for Judah and Israel against the Philistines. Verse 2. Saul and the men of Israel camped in the valley of Eli and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. Verse 3 tells us the Philistines stood on the mountains on one side while uh, on the mountains on the other side with the valley in between them. So the, Israel, the Israeli army is on the north side of the Elah Valley. The Philistine army is on the south side of the Elah Valley. To the west is the Philistine coastal plain. And here's what you need to understand. The Elah Valley is a wonderful route, invasion route, to go from the Philistine coastal plain and you just march right up this valley into the highlands of Israel. So it's almost a very logical invasion route. So Saul has to set up a line of defense, otherwise they're going to go right into the central highlands. So you get kind of a picture of how this goes. Verse 4, then a champion came out from the army of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So this valley is about 12 miles west of Bethlehem. We have each army dug on each side of the valley. So they have the high ground. Each one commands a hillside, and this valley's in between them. Now this valley is a very uh, fertile uh, um, agricultural area at that point in time. So the Philistines have several advantages the Israelites don't have. Number one, the Philistines have chariots. Now, chariots are extremely good offensive weapons in the flat plain. Remember, Philistia is a plain. Philistia is, occupies the coastal region on the Mediterranean Sea, very flat area. So chariots are a very good tank. They were the tanks of, of, uh, of ancient warfare at that point in time. However, chariots are lousy ATVs on hillsides. So they really can't bring the chariots up the hill to the Israeli position on the hillside. Furthermore, if you're armored up, climbing up the side of a hill is a pretty difficult thing to do if you're going to do battle against your enemy who's entrenched on the upper slopes. So we've got the Philistines on one hillside, the Israelis on the other side, but nobody wants to go down to the valley and do warfare. 
If the Israelites go down there, the Philistines can break out the chariots. That's pretty tough to do. And the Philistines don't want to come down in the valley and climb up the side of the hill and battle their opponent uphill. So what we have here is a stalemate. We have a stalemate. We have an invasion, and now we have a stalemate for at least 40 days. And we know it's 40 days because it says, every day for 40 days, morning and night, we've got this champion named Goliath, and he comes out, and he's the one who's doing most of the talking. Now... <clears throat> This champion, the word champion in Hebrew means mediator, which is interesting because a mediator is in between. So the champion literally fights between the lines. You got the Israelis on this side, the Philistines on this side. The champion comes out from the Philistine lines and he's literally in the valley by the brook and he's in between the lines. And this champion is a representative warrior. You need to understand that in this era, almost everybody farmed for a living. Virtually everybody farmed for a living. They're trying to scratch out enough calories to keep body and soul together. So most of the armies were volunteer. They were not trained. They were not professional. They were farmers, right? And they would fight when they needed to, but they were farmers. Before antibiotics showed up, a small flesh wound from an infected blade could create an infection and septic and it could kill you. So warfare was pretty dangerous. Matter of fact, through much of the medieval period of time and ancient times, you would decide winners based on position because nobody wanted to go to war because a lot of people were going to die. Here's the problem. If your army is consisting of farmers and you lose a bunch of people, you don't worry about losing the army. You worry about starving to death next spring. Who's going to do the crops if your farmers are dead? So needless to say, what they did is they had representative proxy wars. You would have a representative warrior from side one, a representative warrior from side two, and they would decide to fight, and the winner of that proxy battle was considered to have won the war. And it was usually winner take all. Obviously, Goliath says, if, if I win, you become our slaves. If we win, we'll become your slaves. So he's the champion. He's nine feet, nine inches tall. It's about two and a half feet taller than your tallest NBA center. He was covered in armor from head to foot. And you're going to read this description, and it's very detailed. This guy is armored up to the teeth. He carries about 125 pounds of chain mail. He's got bronze greaves on his legs. He's got a javelin. He's got a sword. He's got a spear. When they say like a weaver's beam, the spear is about 32 pounds. Okay? The head of the spear is 15 pounds. Right? The, the tip of the spear, 15 pounds. That's like a bowling ball. Get the picture? You've got a shaft like this. You've got a bowling ball weights on the front of this thing that's shaped into a sharp point. This guy's a walking tank. Okay? For 40 days, morning and evening, he comes out to the front lines and he insults Israel and he's trying to goad them into giving him a representative. Come on, let's fight. Right? And there's no takers. And you look and you go, well, duh. Right? I mean, when you listen to the description of this guy, you go, yeah, nine feet nine. All right. So Saul and the army's terrified of him. David is still tending sheep. Now, he plays the harp for Saul occasionally when Saul, remember, Saul was afflicted with an evil spirit. But most of the time, he's back tending sheep for his dad. His dad's pretty elderly. Jesse's three oldest boys are in the army. They have followed Saul into the Elah Valley on the side of the hill there, the north side, and they're in Saul's army. And Jesse hasn't heard any word from his sons in weeks. It's been 40 days. So he says to David, I'm just telling you this story, you already know, take a bunch of food to the camp for your brothers and find out what their welfare is like and come back and tell us what's going on, right? Now remember, they didn't have a big logistics um, group there to feed the troops. You know who fed the troops? You did. You, if you had a soldier in the front lines, you were responsible to get food to the soldier. So that's David's job. David's taking food for his three brothers. And he's supposed to come back home that day and tell dad, here's what's going on with the three boys. So David leaves the flock with the keeper. He's got to walk about 12 miles from Bethlehem, where the sheep are, 12 miles west to the Elah Valley. Now, you walk between three and four miles an hour, so he left before daylight. It takes a few hours, a couple hours. Well, looking around, some of you might take half a day, but anyway. <laughs> Just saying, it's not freeway, man. You got to walk in your flip-flops. 
kinda. You're wearing sandals. So David gets there, and he gets there about the time they're ready to go on morning, not maneuvers, but it seems like the daily routine was to get all the troops in battle formation. So they get the troops out of the camp, out of the bivouac, into, into formation, because you don't know when the other side's gonna attack. So you have to be ready. So they get, when they say battle array, that means we got them formed up, we got them in positions. If there's an attack, we're ready for them. That's what battle array is all, be, all about. And it just so happens, God's timing, that David comes on the 40th day that Goliath is running his big mouth again. He had a big mouth as well, he's nine foot nine, remember? So apparently, every day he had issued this challenge, and when he issued the challenge, he would move close enough to the Israeli line to where they'd all wet their pants, panic, and run. Because it says they all fled and they were terrified, and this happened day after day after day after day. It's kind of interesting. <clears throat> Goliath is a physical giant, historical giant. We've got uh, skeletal fragments of giants in ancient times. We also have a lot of, a fair number of uh, of uh, stone cave paintings and also uh, hieroglyphics in e Egypt to show large, large, large people. But giants are also a metaphor of the things in our life that happen. Uh, all of us have giants, correct? It, it could be the giant of uh, greed, it could be the giant of selfishness, it could be the giant of fear. Whatever your giant is, I know you've got them. And have you ever noticed that giants show up without warning? I mean, you're minding your own business, Bam, something comes up, hits you upside the head. David woke up before daylight. His job today was a messenger boy. Bring food to your oldest sons, bring news back. Should be in bed by nightfall, right? Pretty routine day. He wakes up before light to deliver food. He hears a giant challenge before breakfast. He fights and kills the giant before lunchtime, and he's in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Philistines until sundown. Now, that was not on his script for the morning. <laughs> right? They didn't write that down. Here's the plan for the day. Let's see. We're going to, you know, right? Most of you, when you write your calendar out for tomorrow, do you have a giant on your calendar for tomorrow? Do you have an encounter with a giant written down tomorrow? But you might run into one tomorrow. Amen? Say yes. Some of you, I know, in the next 168 hours, you're going to run into a giant. The issue is, are you ready for him? Are you ready for him? You know, it sounds like your average day at work. Yeah, we, we slay giants before noon. That's what we do. At any rate, it's, it's intriguing to me that when the giant shows up, Israel runs away, you would think that this is the very first time that Israel had ever seen a giant. That would not be true. Two years after leaving Egypt, we're going to run back here about to 1440 BC, uh, they leave Egypt, they go to Kadesh Barnea, which is a, a boundary community, a boundary area, right on the boundary of Canaan. Remember, they're going to enter the land of Canaan. They send how many spies into the land? Twelve. And how many come back with a bad report? Ten come back and they say, we can't conquer this land because there are giants in this land. Numbers 1331. We are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. Verse 32. All the people we saw in this land are men of great size. That means tall. Verse 33. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. <clears throat> That's a great big tribe of, well, we could spend a lot of time on Genesis 6, but these are inheritors. These are genetic progeny of the Nephilim, which uh, is in Genesis 6. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, this is a fatal disease to faith. It's called the grasshopper complex, right? Anytime you uh, compare yourself to someone who's bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, etc., you become a grasshopper in your own eyes. And as you see yourself, they will see you. Now, it's true that the people in Canaan were bigger than the Israelites. It was true that they were stronger. It was not true that they could not be conquered. The only question of was who was going to get the job done. Before Israel entered the land of Canaan, God had told them in Deuteronomy 9, you want a great passage, Deuteronomy 9, the first three verses are really, really good. Hear, O Israel, 
You are crossing over the Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. Verse 2. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? In other words, no one can beat these people. Man, they are large and in charge. They're warriors and they're huge. They're giants. Verse 3. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Now, God is a very honest, holy God of integrity, and he tells them the bad news first. These nations are greater, they're mightier, they're stronger than you, and you cannot conquer them. Is that true? That is true. Then he tells them the good news. These nations are not mightier than me, right? God says, Israel, I'm going to go before you like a raging forest fire. He says a consuming fire. I want you to think of a forest fire that just devours everything in its path. I'm going to consume these nations in front of you so that you will drive them out of the land. Matter of fact, one of my favorite Bible characters is named Caleb at 85 years old. He enters the land of Canaan, 85 years old, takes on the three sons of Anak, all three giants, drives them out of Hebron. At 85, forget about retirement. All of you, I don't care if you're working for a living, forget about retirement, as they say in New York, you know? Leather up, armor up, you got giants to face. If you're on planet Earth and you're breathing, you got work to do. I'm not saying you shouldn't take a vacation, but you don't vacation the last 20 years of your life. I mean, that is not a life of faith. You got things to do. Israel now not only has individual giants to face, remember, Israel's got giant nations to face. Israel's a very small land. The whole thing's only 160 miles long, right? And the bottom half of it's all desert. They had to face Assyria, Egypt, Persia, Greece, Rome. And by God's help, they're still here 4,000 years after Abraham, right? That's the divine equation. Here's the question I have. Could God have removed all the giants in the promised land before Israel crossed the Jordan River? Did God want Israel to face all those giants in the promised land? Now, you weren't quite so sure about that one. Does God want you to face the giants that are going to hammer you Tuesday morning? Yes, he does. God has always arranged for his people to fight giants. Abraham was commanded to do what? Sacrifice his son. How much did Job lose? Everything, not just possessions, lost his family. Daniel's giant was in the lion's den. Three Hebrews, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The disciples in the storm. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Peter was told he was going to die by crucifixion. How would you like to live the rest of your life knowing you're going to die by crucifixion? And Jesus Christ himself told you. That's a giant, right? It'd be pretty easy to get depressed on that one. So everyone faces giants. If you're breathing, you have giants. Your giant might be an addiction. It might be lust. It might be fear. It might be pride, it might be guilt, it might be jealousy, it might be anger, it might be pornography, it might be self-pity. You can build the list. We all have giants. It's real easy when you look at the giants in your life to feel helpless and powerless. And it's easy to believe that they cannot be conquered. How many of you know people that have been battling giants for decades? Yeah. Whatever your giant is, sooner or later, every giant's going to have to be faced and it's going to have to be fought. One of the things that struck me, Israel gets to the land. They're afraid of the giants. They disbelieve God. God says, go back, wander in the wilderness. They wander in the wilderness for 38 years. 38 years later, they come back to the land of Canaan. And you know who's still there waiting for them? The giants. They're still there. They didn't go away. By the way, giants are never in your life by accident. God allows giants in our life to battle test our faith. To battle test our faith. To draw us closer to him and to reveal 
himself and the world and to the world as the only true God. You know, some giants fall quickly. Some giants in your life, you and I will struggle with until we go to heaven. That's just reality. Some giants you will fight until you go to heaven. And the tendency is going to be, well, if I can't kill them by the weekend, I'm just not going to fight anymore. <laughs> you know what happens if you don't fight? They take ground. And if they take enough ground, you wind up a slave. You don't want to be a slave to your giants. Back to the story. David goes to the front lines, visits his brothers. He finds out through the Israeli soldiers that Saul has offered some rather major rewards to anybody who's going to take on Goliath. A lot of cash, marry the king's daughter, hopefully you liked her, and freedom from taxes. No, now that could get motivating, and no more taxes. <laughs> so for 40 days, there's been no takers. Everybody runs away. The nation of Israel, unfortunately, had rejected God as their king, and they put their faith in who? Saul, their human king. And what's Saul doing? Saul's got his depends on in the back lines. I mean, his knees are knocking, right? So he's terrified, and so is Israel. I didn't even give this one to Rob, but I'll just give it to you. Fear is contagious. And so is faith. When Saul is terrified, Israel's terrified with him, and when David lives by faith and trusts God, the entire nation is imbued with faith. So both fear and faith are contagious. That's very, very important when you're around your children and your grandchildren and your workplace. Here's the principle. When you only trust in what you see, you will live in fear and defeat. When you trust in what God says, you will live in victory and faith. Faith and victory. See, Saul and Israel are viewing Goliath with the eyes of the flesh, not with the eyes of faith. From their point of view, they're grasshoppers compared to Goliath. You know, it's interesting, in verse 25, these Israeli soldiers, they come up to David and they're almost breathless. They say, have you seen this guy? Have you seen this guy? Man, he's a giant. He's nine foot nine. Yeah. Compared to man, Goliath's huge. Compared to God... Goliath is tiny, right? Can you imagine flying over this battlefield from an airplane 37,000 feet and even trying to find Goliath with your eyes? And you know what God's point of view is? How many of you ever watched a news story where they start by looking at planet Earth with this wide-angle lens from outer space and then they scope in on the continent and then they scope in on the country and then they scope in on the region, they scope in on the city, they scope in on the block and they scope in on the building, right? You go... And then you back that off and you go, this guy's a giant, but from God's perspective, the guy's what? A nothing, a grasshopper, yeah, a grain of sand. Depends on the point of view. David comes along and says, David can't believe that no one has taken on Goliath. He's in disbelief. In verse 27, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? See, everyone but David saw this conflict as mano a mano, right? Man on man, this is just a human battle. Only David understood it was not just a physical battle. It was a battle over God's honor and glory. Pagan Goliath is trash-talking God and God's people, and David is the only one who's outraged. The only one. David knew that God would not let his name be blasphemed, and that's what Goliath's doing. Glass, blaspheming and profaning God's name. Isaiah 48, 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake I will act for, how can my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. Remember, in ancient times, each tribe or people group worshiped a God or gods. By the way, we have lots of them here in our culture. You know the number one God we worship in this culture? other than ourselves, you know, selfies, big on selfies. We worship technology. We think there's nothing, really, no medical problem, no, no political problem, no military problem that technology will not solve, which means we're worshiping ourselves, we're worshiping our own brain power, et cetera, et cetera. But back in the day, when there was a battle between two tribal groups, it was believed that the stronger God would enable his tribe to win that battle. 
So the battle between David and Goliath is not just a proxy battle between nations, Israel and Philistia. It's a battle between the gods of Israel, of Philistia, and the God of Israel. So it's really a battle between Yahweh, the God of the universe, and the Philistines' fish god, Dagon. That's the real spiritual battle here. God had promised, by the way, some of you need this verse today. Write it down. Some of you really need this verse today. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. This one stuck in my heart all week. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. He's scanning the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. I know that some of you this week are going to need his strong support. Guaranteed. You don't even know what it's going to be yet, but you're going to need his strong support. You can't fight Goliath, but your heart, if it's completely his, you will have his strong support. David is actually eager to fight Goliath because he knows that God's going to win the battle. If you go to verse 32, 1 Samuel 18, 17, and David said to Saul, let no man have a cardiac arrest on account of this guy. He said, let not your heart fail. That's cardiac arrest. You got to read these things, man. I'm telling you. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a warrior from his youth. Now I want you to notice the difference in perspective between Saul and David and it's off the charts black and white. Saul is operating in fear. And Saul says, you can't. David is operating in faith. And David says, I can. Saul trusts in what he sees. David trusts in what God says. Five years before this, something had happened to David. He was anointed king over Israel when he was 12. He's 17 now, five years later. David believed that God's promise was that he was going to be Israel's next king. You know what that meant? He wasn't going to die today. You got that? God said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. What did that mean? He's 17 years old. He hasn't taken the throne yet. He's not going to die today. He knows that. God promised that, right? Every one of us is going to face this decision this week at least. Will you believe what you see with your own eyes and your vision is failing like mine, so don't put too much trust in those eyeballs, or will you believe what God says? Will you trust your own eyes or God's word? I was going to say your lying eyes, but I decided not to do that. Right? See, the, the, the God of the Bible is Lord of everything, including your circumstances, including your giants. David did the impossible here because he trusted the one who's invisible. Now, you need to understand that David's faith here is not a blind faith. David's not a blind faith. David has got history with God. So do you. David's faith is based on God's past performance. If you look at 1 Samuel 17, go to verse 34. Saul says, you can't fight Goliath. David says, I can, by God's help. Here's why, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took the lamb from the flock, I went down and had a prayer meeting. Is that what it says? Well, 35 says, I went out after him, baby. I attacked him, rescued the lamb from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and sent him to see Jesus. Right? I killed him. Verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Here's the principle. Remember God's past victories in your life. It will strengthen your faith for future battles. Has God won past victories in your life? Over and over and over. You know, we tend to forget those. You know, we look back what we remember. The failures, the brokenness, the times stuff didn't work. Remember God's past victories. 
It will strengthen your life for future battles. And for those of you who don't think you're going to have future battles, you better go see Jesus this afternoon if you want to get out of any more battles because battles are part of the turf. That's where we are. We're on the battlefield. This isn't David's first rodeo. I mean, first battle. He is a shepherd boy. He's killed lion and bears before. By the way, flocks of sheep were not kept behind a fence back in the day. They had free range, open pasture, and the shepherd design job description among other things as holly's been teaching is to protect provide protect and be present in order to protect you got to be present so sheep are physically defenseless and they're very mentally challenged so when god calls us sheep it's not a compliment right physically defenseless and mentally challenged so sheep are a really source of protein good source of protein for predators um, during this period of time, by the way, the population density in Israel is so thin that you have African lions roaming free range in, in Israel and you have 500 pound Syrian brown bears. Now, this is a smaller relative of the of the Kodiak brown bear. But anyway, they got free range in Israel. So there's there's wildlife there. Right. Not uncommon occurrence to have to rescue your lamb from a lion or a bear. That was not uncommon. David notice is not passive about protecting his flock. Right? He didn't say, oh, well, I can afford to lose a lamb. Right? He aggressively attacked a predator. You know, we, we think of shepherds as being uh, gentle and loving, and they pick up and carry the lambs, and they do. They are. But you mess with a shepherd's sheep, you're going to die. Period in the story. Shepherd loves the sheep. Jesus loves the sheep. He shed his blood for us. So when the lion or bear turned on David, he grabbed it by the beard, killed it. Now, David had protected his father's flock from four-legged predators. And what he says, look, Goliath is nothing more than a two-legged predator, right? And he's, this two-legged predator is attacking God's flock. So David, as a shepherd, says, I'm going to protect God's flock, the nation of Israel, just like I protected my father's flock as well. I don't think we understand here how much David was dependent on God's supernatural ability to kill lions and bears. I think we look at here, we, the human standpoint is, is David was just a really good warrior. David was 17. You know, you normally don't attack lions and bears with sticks. Normally. He had some supernatural help here, like a lot of it. I want you to notice the difference or the, the, the similarity between David's anointing with the spirit and samson's anointing with the spirit first samuel 16 13 first samuel 16 13 then samuel took the horn of oil get your pen out and anointed david in the midst of his brethren here's what i want you to underline and the spirit of the lord came mightily upon him from that day forward first samuel 16 13 underline and the spirit of the lord came mightily upon david from that day forward so the holy spirit is filling david you know what's wonderful about that? You have the same spirit. You have the same supernatural power today that David had. Now, I want you to notice the exact same words used in the Bible to describe how God's supernatural came upon Samson. Judges 14.5. Judges 14.5. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. This is a lion in the prime of life. Verse 6. The exact same words describe David. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore the lion as one tears a young goat, and he had nothing in his hands. I don't think we understand the supernatural power we've been given. I mean, it's pretty clear here. David was given supernatural power, killed lions and bears, Samson was given supernatural power, tore a lion apart with his bare hand. You have the same spirit. Now, your warfare is probably far harder than David's warfare was because yours is spiritual warfare. But we're going to find out that David fought the battle of faith before he fought the Goliath itself. So David says, I've been given spiritual power and I've proved God those past victories with the lion and the bear. I can take on this giant because God will enable me to do that. Now, you're going to find out that King Saul doesn't believe in the full armor of God. He believes in the full metal jacket of man, verse 38. 
Then Saul clothed David with his garments, that means his chain mail, puts a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed them with his armor, verse 39. And David girded Saul's sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he'd not test them. Now Saul's probably 6'5", 6'6". The armor's a little outsized. You know, David wears a 36 regular and Saul's a 52 long. Kind of tough to make that work. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I haven't tested them. And he took them off. And you say, well, okay, he's not going to fight Goliath with armor on. What's he going to fight with? Choice of weapons would be kind of interesting. Verse 40. And he took his stick in his hand. That's a shepherd's staff. And he chose five smooth stones from the brook and his sling in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Here's the principle. You and I are fighting giants, spiritual giants, much tougher than Goliath, much tougher than Goliath. Use the weapons that God has already given you. You don't need some supernatural weapon that you don't already have. God's already given you all the supernatural weapons you have. Ephesians 6, you have the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, persistent prayer in your war room. How many of you have ever seen the movie War Room? If you haven't seen it, go see it. Don't you understand that is the most power you have? Is prayer, lots of prayer, persistent prayer. You can impact the world from your prayer closet. You can change the world from your prayer closet. Much more powerful than nuclear weaponry. I mean, you can blow things up. You can have, you can, you can see God working according to his wisdom. By the way, when you don't pray or write, you won't get it answered the way you want it. If you say, God, take this person out, mm, you might want to check your motives, okay? But you will see God work. Use those weapons. You will never fight the Lord's battle in Saul's armor. See, many Christians want to do the Christian life relying on the flesh. Man, we're going to rely on human ingenuity. I got the human armor. I got the marketing plan. I got the finances. I've got the radio show. I've got this. And I'm going to fight spiritual battles with human means, and you're going to get defeated every time. You will lose every single time. Satan is absolutely thrilled when Christians rely on themselves. You know why? He can take you on all day long. If you're relying on yourself, you're being spiritually stupid. And he is thrilled because he knows he can defeat you. What terrifies Satan is not human power, it's God's power. That's what terrifies Satan. And when you depend on the Lord and the Lord alone like David did, then you have the Holy Spirit's supernatural power. So we're fighting battles today that are spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. And Ephesians 6 tells us to do what with the armor of God? What does Ephesians 6 tell us to do with the armor? Put it where? On. Put it on. You know, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't say go manufacture your own armor. Bible doesn't say uh, there's armor out there, but you got to go find it. Good luck, right? Go on the search for the Holy Grail, man. You're going to find the armor of God. He says, here it is. It's available, but you got to put it on. You've got to put on the armor of what you got. So you've got all the weapons you need to fight the giants in your life, but you have to wear it. And all the weapons in the world are worthless without the power to use them. That's why you have the Holy Spirit living with you that Andrew talked about this morning. So God has already proved to David that a small staff and a sling will take on lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and it's more than enough when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to take on Goliath. Your faith is not in your weapons, but in the God who gave you the weapons. Verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with his shield bearer in front of him. Now, what it's basically saying is, Goliath is so armored up with his sword and his staff, he can't hold the shield. So you got a normal-sized guy carrying a shield, probably six, five, six feet high, in front of Goliath, trying to help protect him at that point in time. So he's walking in front of him. So there's two guys on the field there. Verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a kid, a youth, same thing, and ruddy, with a handsome appearance. You know, I read that and I thought, what does David's appearance have to do anything? You know, if you're a warrior in that era, you got scars. Lots of scars from battles. David's handsome. There's not a scar on his face. He probably didn't have any zits, right? <laughs> so he's a handsome kid and Goliath goes, well, this guy's never even picked up a sword, right? Then Philistine said to David, verse 43, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. So we've got this physical battle coming up and the physical battle actually only takes a couple of verses to describe. The whole point here is not the physical battle. The spiritual battle between fear and faith is really what's occupied most of the chapter. Now, Goliath violates rule number one of all conflict. You know what rule number one is? Never underestimate your enemy. Never underestimate your enemy. By the way, for Christians, that's pretty good. Your enemy is Satan, the enemy of your soul. Never underestimate your enemy. It doesn't matter what they look like. Your enemy can wear a business suit or a bikini. But I'm telling you, if they're followers of Satan, Satan is your enemy. Figure it out. Don't be in Philist Goliath's trusting what? His eyes, right? He's trusting his eyes. What does Goliath see? Same thing King Saul saw. A 17-year-old civilian shepherd. No armor. No warrior history. No training. The only weapon that Goliath sees is a shepherd's staff. Nah, that's probably not much match for a 30-pound spear, right? See, you know what you use shepherd's staff with? A staff, not a, not a crook. That was to rescue sheep. Shepherd's staff often was an offensive weapon. You drove away pests, feral dogs, coyotes, things that bothered the flock. It was, a, it was a device for protection. But you didn't take on giants with a shepherd's staff, right? Goliath believes that David is treating him like a dog. David doesn't even bring a serious weapon to the battle. If you're Goliath, you're going, I'm much bigger than this kid, and he's not even armed. Goliath's actually pretty angry. He's outraged that Israel's champion is a shepherd. He's a professional warrior, and this is the best Israel's got as a shepherd. You know what Goliath's angry about? What glory will I receive when I kill this unarmed shepherd boy? Can you imagine Goliath going back to his lines after he kills David? Do you think they're going to cheer him? They're going to go, well, you had a child for an opponent. I mean, big deal. Goliath's into it for himself. His ego's on the line here. He goes, I don't even have a worthy opponent to fight at that point in time. Goliath's obviously trusting his own gods. He curses David in their name. Goliath promises that he's going to slaughter David, scatter his body for the wildlife to eat. David says in verse 45... This is the heart of the message right here. Verse 45 to 47. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. Those are your weapons. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, underline the Lord, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. And he's not only predicting, prophesying Goliath's death, he's basically saying, we are going to lay waste your entire army. Has the battle started yet? Has the battle been won? The battle's won. How come David can say this? He's, I mean, he's saying, you're as good as dead. Dead men walking, in a few hours, all of you are going to be gone. It's because he says, the Lord will deliver you into our hands. Not me, the Lord. Here's the principle. If your only motive is God's glory, you will never lack God's power. Now, there's a trick word in there. I didn't say if your motive. I said if your only motive. See, most of the time when I get into the conflicts, I have more motives than God's glory. My ego gets in the way and I want to trash him for me. I mean, you know, for my defense. If your only motive is God's glory, you will never lack God's power. So David makes a statement of faith that God's going to empower him to kill Goliath. And not only will Goliath lose his head, but there's going to be thousands of Philistine soldiers left on the battlefield as fresh protein for the critters. See, these odds are impossible. The best warrior that human skill can produce versus a shepherd boy. 
Now, if you're trusting your eyeballs and only your eyeballs, you're going to bet on what you see. Goliath has every piece of modern weaponry and David's got a stick and a sling. You know, it wouldn't take a miracle for Goliath to kill David, right? That's kind of what you'd expect. Bigger versus small, logical. You know where we've seen this before? How many remember a judge named Gideon? Gideon's going to have been invaded. The whole Judah subterritory has been invaded by the Midianites. Midianites, it says they cover the land as grasshoppers. I mean, every single stick of dirt has been covered by a Midianite. They have an army of over 120,000 people. That's a pretty good-sized army in any world, but an army in the territory of Judah of 120,000 invading armies, pretty big army. Gideon's going to raise an army, and he has um, 10,000 soldiers versus 120. And God tells him, you have too many soldiers. And if you're a traditional general, you go, you can't have too many soldiers. It's impossible to have too many soldiers. What do you mean to have too many soldiers? In essence, God says, if you conquer with 10,000 soldiers, who are you going to give credit to? You. You're going to say, I did it. You have too many soldiers. So he arranges for a series of tests, and they get down to 300 soldiers. I don't know if you've ever done the odds, but 300 versus 120,000? Boy, you would not expect, I mean, if they're going to win over 120,000 soldiers, it will be only because of God. It's an impossible victory. Same thing here. God's going to use a shepherd to destroy the greatest warrior of his time with a slingshot so everyone will know that God alone is God. Everyone will know that Israel's God is the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. David's victory is also going to send a little message of humility to both armies that no matter how much you fight, no matter how big and bad you are, battles are not won by human might but by the Lord, by God's might. God does the same thing today. You may look at your giant today and you may say, there's no way I can win this battle, and you would be right. In your strength, you're going to lose. I don't care how strong your willpower is, you're going to lose. The only way you're going to win that battle is if you surrender to the Lord, you ask for his power, you pick up his weapons, and you use them as he tells you to use them. See, we tend to trust in human effort first, and only when we run out of gas do we trust the Lord. We should be trusting the Lord first like David. You notice it's interesting that David doesn't run away from his giant. What's it say he does? It says he runs toward the giant. He runs toward the lion and the bear. He runs into the conflict. That's pretty good. You're not going to avoid your battle with the giant. You know, it's interesting. They say when, you're, um, when you are facing a predator in the wild, I'm talking about a wild animal, be it a lion, a bear, a, 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 a jaguar, whatever it happens to be. Jaguars usually are ambushed. But you, number one, you don't turn and run. Because when you turn and run, you trigger their attack instinct. And they'll come and get you, and they will get you, right? You stand your ground. Now, you may or may not do eye dominance. That's a good way to get a bear to attack you. But you don't run from the battle. You stand your ground. David's running toward the giants. Put on the whole armor of God means fight today, now. This giant doesn't hurt you. You know, the giants in your life don't just hurt you. You know who else they hurt? Everyone you love. I used to work in drug and alcohol. And I'm telling you, addictions of any kind don't just break the person with the addiction. That giant destroys the families. It destroys the friends. It destroys the jobs. It destroys whatever your giant is. It's not just you. It's everyone in your world. And you, as Holly mentioned, as a shepherd need to do battle not just for you, but for those you love in the name and in the power of Almighty God. So Saul had been trying to avoid Goliath for how long? Did it help? It got worse. Fear increased. It didn't decrease. Now David's going into battle with a slingshot. Slingshots of the era were two leather straps. They weren't one of these pull jobs. They had two long leather straps. You had a pouch in the middle. You put a rock in there and you swung that thing around your head till it got up to speed. Then you released one strap and you sent the projectile on the way. 
Typically, most sling stones used in battles, the smallest size are usually golf ball size. The most common size was a baseball size. That's a pretty good size rock. They weighed about 16 ounces, about a pound. So when you were slinging a stone back then, it wasn't a pebble. Even if you hit somebody with a pebble, it doesn't do any good. But you sling a baseball size rock weighing about 16 ounces, and you can do some damage. Most common range for battles was slingshots 40 feet. I'm, I'm no more than 40 feet from here to Greg. So this is mano a mano. I mean, you're gonna see somebody's eyeballs if you're in a slingshot contest with them at that point. Probably the maximum range is between 100 and 150 feet. Now it says, David took five stones. And I've heard some jokes, well, Goliath had four brothers, yeah, but they weren't there. He took five stones because he wasn't sure if the first one would do the job or if he needed to keep on slinging. Some of us think our, our giants have to drop the first time we confront them. Most of the time, that's not true, right? Most of the time, the giants in our life, it's a long battle, and you need to keep slinging. You know what you do? How did Jesus fight his giant in the wilderness? With the word of God. Remember when he was tempted by Satan? Satan says, turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus do? Man shall not live by bread alone. The primary weapon you have is the word of God when you're fighting your giants. Know the word of God. Use it. I have no problem quoting the word of God to Satan. That's power. That's power. Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Most giants aren't going to fall with your first stone. Just so you know, in that era, most helmets had open face. There were no visors in the Aegean era helmet at this point. Within a century after this, they all had face plates, right? I guess they found out glad. It says that God guided David's stone so that it sank into Goliath's forehead. That's a pretty fast moving stone. Clearly, there's some divine help here, but we got one shot, one kill, right? Then it says, David took Goliath's sword and cut his head off, and the Philistines didn't keep their end of the bargain. They didn't become slaves. They fled. But the upstart of the whole thing is who got the glory? God got the glory. That's the whole point. When God gets the glory, you get the blessing, and he then is exalted, and God is a self-revealing God, and when he's glorified, we are blessed, but at the end of the day, that's what we live for, and that's why he wants us to trust him at that point. Okay, let's review, Tom. You can start getting uh, prayer requests together. Number one, when you trust only in what you see, you will live in fear and defeat. When you trust in what God says, you will live in faith and victory. Remember, you're going to this week have to decide, do I believe my own eyes or do I believe what God says? Trust what God says. He's the Lord of your circumstances. Number two, remember God's past victories. One of the things I would have you do, get a notepad and write down over the last 5, 10, 15 years the victories God's won in your life. How he saved you from bad decisions, how he protected you, when he came through. Build that list and remember it because you're going to have future battles and you'll need a strong faith. Number three, use the weapons that God's already given you. The shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, persistent prayer. If you want a list of weapons, go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 has a marvelous list of weapons at that point in time. And lastly, check your motives. If your only motive in fighting giants is God's glory, you will never lack for God's power. You will have all the divine power you need to win the battles that God puts you in your world. Does that make sense so far? Say yes. yes. All right. 167 hours, I will see you, Lord willing. Fight them giants in the name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that you know, do. do.